You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Appendix 2 of The Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature, a lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner. These are additional lectures that have been added. The second appendix begins with The Essence of National Epics with special reference to the Kalevala. I'm going to pronounce it that way. Um, I looked it up. I can't find the pronunciation. It's a public lecture given in Helsinki, April 9th, 1912. To begin with, I would like to apologize for being unable to give this lecture in the language customary in this country. This lecture is being held in response to the wishes of friends of our Theosophical Society. Since I have been called here to hold a series of lectures for them lasting fourteen days, they thought that during this time it would be possible to hold the two announced public lectures. I must further ask you to pardon if I, as one unfamiliar with the language, do not pronounce correctly some of the names and characterizations taken from the national epic of the Finns. Spiritual science itself will be introduced only in the lecture to be held next Friday. The observations presented in today's lecture will be much more concerned with a, na- with a neighboring field that can be illuminated by spiritual science. We shall speak of a subject which, in the very deepest sense of the word, is one of the most interesting in the study of human history and reflection on that history national epics. We need only think of some of the well-known folk epics, for example those of Homer, which became the national epics of the Greeks, the Middle European Nibelungen legend, and finally the Kalevala, and we realize immediately that we are led by these folk epics deeper into human souls and human striving than any historical research could bring us. Through them ancient times become alive for us, as though they were placed directly in front of our souls in the present moment. We are touched by them in the same way we are touched by the destinies and lives of people immediately around. In terms of history, the ancient times of the Greek peoples reported to us by the Homeric epics are uncertain and vague. But when we let the content of the Iliad or the Odyssey work upon us, we can see right into the souls of those people, who are otherwise entirely beyond the reach of ordinary historical observation. It is no wonder that the study of national epics is full of riddles for those considering them from the point of view of science or literature. With respect to the ancient Greek epics, we need only point out one fact, which a brilliant observer observer of the Iliad expressed repeatedly in a very beautiful book concerning Homer's Iliad that appeared just a few years ago. I am thinking of Hermann Grimm, the nephew of Jakob Grimm, the great researcher of German language, myths, and legends. When Hermann Grimm let the characters and facts of the Iliad work on him again and again, he felt called upon to say, Oh, this Homer, we do not need today to go into the question of Homer's personality. When he describes anything taken from handwork or art, he actually appears to be an expert in that craft. When describing a battle or a fight, he appears to be fully acquainted with all the strategic and military principles that come into consideration in conducting war. Hermann Grimm quite properly points out that Napoleon, the strict judge of such things, was a great admirer of Homer's objective battle descriptions. Napoleon was a man no doubt entitled to judge whether or not out of the spirit of Homer military things are portrayed with immediacy, objectively and filled with life. 
we ourselves know from the universal human point of view to what extent humor, Homer places characters before our souls as though they stood directly in front of our physical eyes. How have such national epics continually proven themselves through the years? Truly, anyone observing the situation in an unprejudiced way will not conclude that humanity's artificial institutions, for example educational institutions, are responsible for maintaining the centuries of interest, even into our age, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. This interest is a given. It is a universally human interest. But in a certain sense, these folk epics give us a task. When we study them, they immediately present us with a very specific, one would like to say an interesting task. Namely, they want to be taken precisely with all their details. We notice immediately that something in the content of such folk epics becomes comprehensible if we try to read them as we would any modern work of art, like a novel, for instance. From the first lines of the Iliad we can feel that Homer is speaking with precision. What does he describe to us? He tells us right at the beginning, from other portrayals of the story, we know a number of things not contained in the Iliad, events from the past that lead up to the story told in the epic. Homer wants only to describe to us what he stated so exactly in the first lines, the anger of Achilles. And if we read through the entire Iliad, looking at it carefully, then we must say, in truth there is nothing within which cannot be characterized. Let me say that again. In truth there is nothing within which cannot be characterized as a fact resulting from the anger of Achilles. Something else also occurs right at the beginning of the Iliad. Homer does not begin simply with the facts or with any personal opinion. He begins rather with something that the modern age would perhaps like to understand as a phrase. He, he begins by saying, quote, Sing to me, O muse, of the anger of Achilles, unquote. And the deeper we penetrate into this national epic, the clearer it becomes that we cannot understand the meaning, spirit, and significance of this epic unless we take seriously these words at the beginning. Then we must ask ourselves, what exactly do they mean? Now look at the description itself, at the way the events are brought before our souls. Not only experts and scientific students, but many people, even artistically complete spirits such as Hermann Grimm, asked, what do these words mean? Quote, Sing to me, O muse, of the anger of Achilles. Unquote. This question went to their heart. How do the deeds of spiritual divine beings in the Nibelungen's legend, the Kalevala, or to begin with the deeds, intentions, and passions of the Olympic gods in Homer's writings, relate to the deeds, intentions, and passions of human beings? How do they relate to human beings like Achilles, who in a certain sense are distant from ordinary people? And how do they relate to the passions, intentions, and deeds of men like Odysseus and Agamemnon, who are closer to common humanity? When Achilles appears before our soul, he seems to us to be lonely, in contrast to the people with whom he lives. As the story advances, we quickly come to feel that in Achilles we have a personality who actually cannot speak to any of the other heroes about the deepest concerns of his soul. Homer also shows us how the things that really stir Achilles' heart he must discuss and arrange with divine spiritual beings who do not belong to the human kingdom. He shows us how Achilles, all the way through the Iliad, stands lonely in the kingdom of human beings while standing close to supersensible, super-earthly powers. It is strange that when we gather up all the human feeling and thinking achieved through human culture and turn our attention to behold this Achilles, 
we must say because of the way he appears to us, how egotistical, how merely personal. A being with divine spiritual impulses flowing into his soul is acting entirely out of personal considerations. For a long time this war, so important for the Greeks, this Trojan War of legend, only progressed, that is, the particular episodes described in the Iliad only took place because Achilles was personally settling accounts with Agamemnon. And we constantly see supra-earthly powers getting involved. We see Zeus, Apollo, and Athena describing, distributing impulses, so to speak, placing mortals in their places. Before the task came to me, to approach these things from the point of view of spiritual science, I always found it strange how a very intelligent man, with whom I had the good fortune of often discussing these things, how Hermann Grimm came to terms with these things. Not only in his writings, but also in personal conversations, and and there with even greater clarity, he often said, if we consider only the historical powers and impulses playing into the development of humanity, then we cannot come to terms with what is living and working in the great national epics. Therefore, for Hermann Grimm, the gifted observer of the Iliad and of folk epics altogether, there was something that exceeds ordinary human powers of consciousness, exceeds understanding, reason, and sense observation, exceeds normal human feeling that became a real power, a power that is creative, just like other historical impulses. Hermann Grimm spoke of a genuinely creative fantasy that accompanies the development of humankind. He spoke of this fantasy the way one would speak of a being, of a reality, of something that held sway over human beings and, at the beginning of the times we can observe, had more of a say in the evolution of individual folk soul, folk groups than what ordinary soul forces could say to human beings. Hermann Grimm always spoke of this creative fantasy as of another world shining forth into the human world, which could not be completely contained in the usual human soul forces and which he therefore saw in the role of a co-creative force in the process of human evolution. Now it is peculiar, but when we consider this battlefield of the Iliad, this portrayal of the anger of Achilles with all the involvement of supersensible divine spiritual powers, we are not satisfied with a study such as Hermann Grimm has produced. In his book on the Iliad we find many references to resignation, that show us how today's usual literary or scientific point of view cannot adequately account for these things. What conclusions does Hermann Grimm arrive at concerning the Nibelungen Nibelungen legend or the Iliad? He comes to the conclusion that there were dynasties or ruling families that preceded the historically known dynasties. That is how Hermann Grimm thinks. One would like to say literally. He thinks that Zeus, with his entire entourage, represents a kind of reigning family that preceded the reigning family of which Agamemnon was a member. He sees the human history having a uniformity. He thinks of the gods or heroes portrayed in the Iliad or the Nibelungen legend as ancient human beings. The people who came later only dared to represent them by dressing their deeds, their character, and the clothing of superhuman myths. There is much that cannot be accounted for if one begins with such a supposition. Above all, the particular way the gods intervene in Homer's stories is hard to explain. I ask you to consider just this, how do Thetis, the mother of Achilles, Athena, and other gods intervene in the events of Troy? They intervene by assuming the form of mortal human beings, inspiring them, so to speak, and leading them to their deeds. The gods themselves do not appear. Instead, they permeate living human beings. 
Living people do not figure as the representatives of the gods, but rather as the sheaths or garments permeated by invisible powers who cannot appear on the battlefield in their own form, in their own being. It certainly would have been strange to assume that ordinary people from the most ancient times should have been portrayed as needing representatives from the tribe of mortals to serve as their sheaths. That is just one indication among many that can prove to us all that we will not be able to explain the old national epics in this way. It is just as difficult to understand the characters in the Nibelungen legend. I am thinking of Siegfried of Xanten on the Lower Rhine, who went to the court of Burgundy in Worms to court Krimhilda, the sister of Gunther. Siegfried then courts Brunhilda for Gunther using special talents only he, Siegfried, possesses. How strangely are these figures, such as Brunhilda of Island or Siegfried, described to us? Siegfried is described as having overcome the so-called race of the Nibelungen, as having acquired or conquered the treasure of the Nibelungen. By means of what he has acquired through victory over the Nibelungen, he has been given special powers. These are expressed in the epic when it is said that he can make himself invisible and that in a certain sense he is invulnerable. Furthermore, he has powers that the ordinary Gunther does not have, for Gunther cannot win Brunhilde, who cannot be conquered by an ordinary mortal. Siegfried is victorious over Brunhilde because of the special powers he has as possessor of the Nibelungen treasure. Because he can then hide these powers again, he is in a position to lead Brunhilde to Gunther, his brother-in-law. Then we find Kriemhilde and Brunhilde, two very different characters, present at the same time in the court of Burgundy. We experience them as having forces working into their souls that cannot be explained as powers ordinarily present in the human soul. Because of these powers they come into conflict, and Hagen, the faithful servant, can be misled by Brunhilde to kill Siegfried. This points out a motif that is strangely characteristic of Middle European legends. Siegfried has higher, superhuman powers because he possesses the Nibelungen treasure. But in the final analysis they do not necessarily make him into a victorious character, rather into a character who stands tragically before us. The powers Siegfried has through the Nibelungen treasure are also a tragic fate for the human being. Things become even stranger when we consider further the related Nordic legend of Sigurd, the dragon killer. But it also helps to clarify our discussion. Sigurd, who is none other than Siegfried, immediately appears to us as the conqueror of the dragon, and in this way he has acquired the Nibelungen treasure from an old race of dwarfs. Brunhilde appears to us as a figure of superhuman greatness, as a Valkyrie. We see then that there are two ways to represent these things in Europe. One way connects Brunhilde directly to the divine, supersensible world, and also shows us that something is to be found in Brunhilde that belongs directly to the supersensible world. The other humanizes the legend, but nevertheless we can recognize that even here the divine is found sounding through everywhere. Now let us turn from these legends, from these national epics, to another region, a region of which I am only allowed to speak as one who can see things from the outside, that is, as one who can recognize them while not speaking the language. I ask you to take into consideration that I can only speak about all that comes to meet a West European in the Kalevala, as one who considers the spiritual content, the great and mighty figures therein. Of course, the fine points of the epic which are no doubt present and only come out when one really masters the language in which the epic is written, these external fine points must escape me. 
When we study the Kalevala, how strangely the trinity of figures appears to us. These three, well, one is really in a predicament when trying to find an appropriate name to use for them. One cannot say gods, one cannot use the word heroes for the three kings, Vainamoinen, Ilmarinen, and Lemminkainen. These three figures speak a strange language when we compare their characters. We can clearly recognize through this language that the events related to us go far beyond what the usual powers of the human soul can achieve. When we observe these three figures only externally, they grow into frightful proportions. What is strange is that even though they grow into frightful proportions and every single characteristic stands graphically before our eyes, still we never have the feeling that the frightful proportions become grotesque or paradoxical. Everywhere throughout the story we have the feeling that it is natural for what needs to be said to appear with superhuman greatness, with superhuman significance. And then the contents contain such riddles. There is something that spurs us on to think about the deepest contents of the human soul. It seems to go beyond everything that can be comprehended by the forces that ordinarily live in our soul. Ilmarinen, who is often called the smith, the artistic smith of everything, abetted by Vainamoinen, forges the Sampo, a region where live what may be called the older brothers of humanity, a region at least where a more primitive people than the Finns live. And we see this strange thing, that a lot of different events occur far from the theater in which the main events take place. Time goes by and we see Vainamoinen and Ilmarinen forced to retrieve what was left in a foreign land, the Sampo. When we allow this strange language of the spirit that speaks through the forging of the Sampo, its separation at a distance and its retrieval, to work upon us, we gain the definite impression. As I said, I ask you to bear in mind that I am speaking as a foreigner and therefore can only speak of the impression a foreigner receives. That The most essential, the most significant aspect of this grand composition is just this, the forging, the separation at a distance and the later retrieval of the Sampo. The conclusion of the Kalevala touches me in a very peculiar way. I have heard there are people who believe the conclusion to be perhaps a later edition. For my feeling, just this conclusion with Mariata and her son, this involvement of a very strange Christianity, I say expressly of a very strange Christianity, belongs to the whole. The Kalevala acquires through this conclusion a very special nuance, a coloring that serves, so to speak, to make it entirely understandable. I would like to say that for my feeling there is altogether no portrayal of Christianity to be found anywhere as delicate and wonderfully impersonal as that found at the end of the Kalevala. The Christian principle is freed from any geographic limitations. The approach of Mariata to Herod, whom we meet in the Kalevala as Rotus, is structured in such an impersonal fashion that we are hardly reminded of any kind of location or personality in Palestine. Indeed, we are, we could say, not even in the least reminded of the historical Jesus Christ. At the end of the Kalevala, we find the penetration of the noblest cultural pearl of humanity into the Finnish culture, delicately hinted at as the most intimate concern of the heart of humankind. Connected with this is the tragic development that can affect us so deeply in our souls. In the moment when Christianity enters in, when Mariata's son is baptized, Vainamoinen departs from his people, in order to go to an undetermined destination. He leaves his folk with only the content and the power of what he, through his singing, 
had been able to tell them concerning the ancient mysteries included in the history of this people. This withdrawal of Vainamoinen, when the son of Mariatta appears, seems to me so significant because we can see in the moment when Christianity found entry into Finland the living interplay of everything that held sway in the ground of the Finnish people, the Finnish folk soul that held sway since ancient times. The way this power holding sway since ancient times related itself to Christianity is such that we can feel with a wonderful intimacy all that was involved in the souls of the people. What I am saying is objective. I am not saying it to make anyone happy or to flatter. We West Europeans have in this national epic a wonderful example of how in the immediate present the members of a folk bodily stand before us with their entire soul so that through the Kalevala we in Western Europe can become well acquainted with the Finnish soul. Why have I said all this to you? I have said it to characterize how something speaks in national epics that cannot be explained by the ordinary powers in the human soul, even when one speaks of fantasy as a genuine power. And even though much of what will be said may only sound like a hypothesis to many, nevertheless perhaps I can now add what spiritual science has to say concerning the nature of national epics. I am, of course, aware that what I have to say touches something that today, in our time, very few people can give their assent to. It will be seen by many as a reverie or fantasy. Others will accept it, at least as one hypothesis among others, one that can be suggested to explain the evolution of humankind. However, for those who penetrate into spiritual science, I will not be speaking of a hypothesis. In the next lecture I will permit myself to describe spiritual science in such a way that I will speak rather of the results of genuine research that can be placed alongside the results of other scientific research. These things we must speak about sound strange because the present-day scientific establishment, which thinks it is standing firmly on the ground of real facts, of the only true and reachable reality, limits itself to what can be perceived by the external senses, to what human understanding bound to the brain and to the senses can discover about things. Therefore it is considered unscientific today to speak of a research method that reaches for other forces in the soul, forces that make it possible to see into the supersensible, to see the influx of the supersensible into the sensible. We are led by this research method, by spiritual science, not merely to the abstract fantasy to which Hermann Grimm was led when studying national epics, but we are led rather to something going far beyond fantasy, something that portrays a condition of soul and consciousness entirely different from what human beings can have in the present moment of our development. Through spiritual science we are led back to antiquity in an entirely different way than, let us say, through ordinary science. When looking back at the evolution of humankind, ordinary science customarily sees what we today call the human being as having gradually developed out of creatures similar to animals. Spiritual science does not confront this modern research prepared for battle. It rather fully acknowledges the great and mighty accomplishments of this science of the 19th century. It acknowledges the full significance of the idea that animal forms have been transformed from the least perfect to the perfect, and that the external form of the human being can be connected to the most perfect animal form. But spiritual science cannot stop with such a study of human evolution, of the evolution of organisms altogether. It cannot stop with a study that would portray from the point of view of external senses only what has taken place in the course of the earth's history in the organic world up to the appearance of the human being. 
For spiritual science, the human being today stands alongside the world of animals. In the world that surrounds us, we see variously shaped animal forms. We see spread out over the earth the human race, which is, in a certain sense, uniform. In spiritual science, we also have an unprejudiced view of how, in external forms, everything speaks for the human being's relatedness to the other organisms on the earth. But when, in spiritual science, we pursue the evolution of humankind backward, we cannot go back to a time when, in the grey mists of antiquity, the stream of humankind flows back directly into the line of animal development. When we go back from the present into the past, we find that there is no place where we can directly line up the present human form with any animal form that we know from the present. When we go back in the evolution of humankind, we find the same soul forces, the same powers of understanding, feeling and willing in human beings, but in primitive, ever less developed forms. Then we arrive back at the grey, dim ages of the past, concerning which the old documents tell us little. Even when we can go back as far as the Egyptians and other Near Eastern peoples who still find an ancient form of humanity with the we still find an ancient form of humanity with the same powers of feeling, thinking and willing as our own. In a certain sense, though, those powers were grander as well as more primitive than ours. These powers have only attained their present forms in recent times. We see them as important impulses of humanity, as important historical impulses, to the extent that we can trace humankind backward and take into consideration its present soul configuration. Nowhere do we find it possible to establish a kinship between present-day animal forms and any form of the human race, even the race of men and women lying farthest in the past. This is what spiritual science must assert, and today there are even thoughtful natural scientists who acknowledge it. We can go back into the past and observe how the human soul has changed. We can compare how a human being thinks today, let us say, scientifically or otherwise, how we use our intelligence and our powers of feeling, with how people thought in the past. We can follow this back into the past with relative precision and see how at a certain time modern thinking first flared up in humankind. It first appeared in the 6th or 7th century before Christ. The entire configuration of present-day feeling and thinking does not actually reach any further back into the past than into those times when the first Greek philosophers of nature are said to have lived. Going back further with an unprejudiced view, we find, without even touching spiritual science, that all scientific thinking ceases, that the human soul is constituted in an entirely different way. The constitution of the human soul then was much less personal. Its powers must be described as much more instinctive. We would not want to say that the people of that time acted out of the same kinds of instincts as the present-day animals, but the kind of guidance present today through reason and understanding was not present. In its place, a certain instinctive, immediate certainty was present in human beings. Their actions proceeded from direct elemental impulses. They did not control their actions through intellectual understanding tied to the brain. We find the forces still holding sway there that we modern people have separated into intellectual forces and the forces of fantasy. Today the forces of fantasy are carefully separated from those intellectual forces that lead us to science. Fantasy, understanding, and reason worked all mixed up together in those ancient times. The further we go back into the past, the less we are able to call what held sway in the soul of human beings, what worked as fantasy and understanding, inseparably bound up together, the less we can characterize this mixture 
mixture the same way we characterize the power in the soul called fantasy today. We are well aware that when we speak of fantasy today we are speaking of a power in the soul, the products of which we are not really allowed to use. We are not really allowed to ascribe reality to them. The modern human being is careful in these matters. We are careful not to mix the products of fantasy together with what the logic of reason tells us. If we look at what the human spirit produced in those prehistoric times, before fantasy and intellect were separated from one another, then we can feel how an original, elemental, instinctive power held sway in human souls. We can find characteristics of present-day fantasy in this ancient power, but we should remember that what fantasy gave the human soul in those days had something to do with a reality. Fantasy was not yet fantasy. It was still, I will not hesitate to use the term, a clairvoyant power. Fantasy was still a special ability in the soul. It was a gift of the soul through which the human being could see things that are hidden from people today, during an epoch when understanding and reason should be especially developed. Those powers that were not fantasy but clairvoyant powers penetrated deep into the hidden forms of existence and the hidden forces lying behind the sensible world. An unprejudiced consideration of the development of humankind backward through time must lead us to this conclusion. Truly, we must take the words evolution and development seriously. The powers of understanding and reason that have brought humankind to its present advanced state, in quotes, are the result of an evolution. The present powers of the soul have developed from others. Our present soul forces are limited to what can be perceived by the external wor- of the external world by the senses. But originally humankind, which had to do without science in the modern sense, without the use of the intellect in the modern sense, humankind with its primal powers of soul that existed in the depths of every individual folk, <clears throat> saw into the foundations of existence, into a region that lies supersensibly behind the sensible. Clairvoyant powers once belonged to the souls of all folk groups. Present-day powers of understanding and reason, our present way of thinking and feeling, has evolved, has been formed from these clairvoyant powers. The soul forces that we can call, in a certain sense, clairvoyant powers were such that the human being felt at the same time, I myself am not the one who is thinking or feeling within me. With this entire body and soul, human beings felt themselves devoted or given over to higher, supersensible powers working and living within them. In this way, human beings felt themselves to be like vessels through which supersensible powers spoke. We see the meaning of humankind's continuing development in light of this. Human beings would have remained dependent beings, able to feel themselves only as sheaths, as vessels for higher powers and beings, had they not advanced to the use of their own understanding and reason. Through use of their intellect, human beings have become more independent, but at the same time cut off, in a certain way, from the spiritual world for a while during their development. They have been cut off from the supersensible background of existence. In the future this will change again. The further back we go, the deeper the human soul was able to see into the background of existence through the use of clairvoyant powers. Such a soul could see how, out of this background of existence, those powers came forth which were at work on the human being. The human soul could see back to that point in time when earthly conditions were entirely different from today's, when the forms of living beings were much more mobile, much more subject to a kind of metamorphosis. 
We must go back a long way from what is called the human cultural epoch of present-day humanity. We must pursue the evolution of the human being alongside the evolution of animals. Indeed, the separation of the animal form from the human lies much further in the past than is usually believed. At the time of separation, the animal forms became rigid and less mobile, while the human form, remaining completely soft and flexible, could be formed and imprinted by what it experienced inwardly in its soul. Here we arrive back at a time in the evolution of humanity to which our present-day consciousness cannot reach. But there was another consciousness then present in the soul, a consciousness connected to the clairvoyant powers just characterized and able to reach back to that time in the past. Such a consciousness was able to see into the past and see humanity evolving out of the past already completely separated from an animal life. It also saw how, in a living connection with supersensible powers constantly entering in, human forces held sway. It saw what was still present as a faint echo in the times when, for example, the Homeric epics arose, and it saw what had been present to a much greater degree in yet earlier times. If we were to go back to the times before Homer, we would then find that people had a clairvoyant consciousness able to remember human events from prehistory. Their memory could relate the details of what happened in human evolution. By Homer's time, things had reached the point that people felt clairvoyant consciousness was present, but disappearing. That was a time when human beings did not speak out of themselves as independent, egotistical beings. Rather, gods, supersensible spiritual powers, spoke through them. We must therefore take it seriously when Homer says he is not speaking out of himself, but says, quote, Sing to me, O muse of the anger of Achilles. Unquote. Sing to me, higher being, being that speaks through me, that takes possession of me when I sing and speak. These first lines of Homer are a reality. We are not led to ancient reigning dynasties similar to our present-day humanity. We are led by Homer himself to the fact that in ancient times there were people in whom the supersensible was living. Achilles is clearly a personality from the time of transition from the old clairvoyance to the modern way of seeing things. We find this modern way in Agamemnon, Nestor, and Odysseus. It has been led even further to a higher way of seeing. We can only understand Achilles if we know that Homer wants in him to present a member of ancient humanity, one who lived during an era lying between the time when human beings could directly reach up to the old gods and the time beginning approximately with Agamemnon of present-day humanity. In the same way, we are directed to a prehistoric time of humanity in the Nibelungen legend. The entire portrayal of this epoch shows us this. We are dealing there with people of our time in a certain sense, but with a special kind of human being of our time, one who has preserved something from the time of ancient clairvoyance. All the characteristics listed as belonging to Siegfried, that he can make himself invisible, that he has powers enabling him to overcome Brunhilde, who could not be overcome by an ordinary mortal, all that, along with other things related about him, shows us that we have in him a human being who has carried over into present-day humanity, as if in an inner memory, the achievements of the old soul powers, which are connected to the old clairvoyance and to nature. What is the transition in which Siegfried finds himself? Brunhilde's relationship to Krimhilde, Siegfried's wife, shows us the answer to that question. It is not possible here to go into greater detail concerning the significance of these two characters, 
We succeed in understanding all these legends if we see in the figures appearing in them pictorial representations of inner clairvoyant or remembered clairvoyant conditions. We can see then in Siegfried's relationship to Krimhilda his relationship to the soul powers working within himself. In a sense, his is a soul in transition between two ages. With the Nibelungen treasure, that is, with the clairvoyant secrets of the ancient times, he brings over into the new age something that makes him at the same time unfit for his present age. People of ancient times could live with the Nibelungen treasure, that is, with ancient clairvoyant powers. Conditions then changed on the earth, and as a result Siegfried, who bears in his soul an echo of the old times, no longer fits into the present. He becomes a tragic figure. How does the present relate to what is still living in Siegfried? Something of the old clairvoyant powers is still alive for him, because when he is overcome, Krimhilda is left behind. The Nibelungen treasure is brought to her, and she can use it. Later we discover that the Nibelungen treasure is taken from her by Hagen. We can see that Brunhilde, too, in a certain sense, is in a position to work with the ancient clairvoyant powers. Therefore she stands at odds with the people who do fit into that age, Gunther and his brothers. But above all, Gunther, the one in whom Brunhilde has absolutely no interest whatsoever. But why was that? Now we know from the story that Brunhilde is a kind of Valkyrie figure, that is again a picture in the human soul is something with which the human being could still unite through clairvoyant powers in ancient times. But now it has withdrawn, become unconscious, and because of the way human beings presently live in our age of intellect, only after death can they unite with it. That is the reason for the union with the Valkyries at the moment of death. The Valkyrie is the personification of a power living in the soul of human beings of the present age. It is the sole power that the old clairvoyant consciousness could reach, but that is now only experienced by human beings when they pass through the gate of death. Only then are they united with this sole power represented by Brunhilde. Because Krimhilde still knows something of the old clairvoyance and the powers the soul receives from the ancient clairvoyance, she becomes a figure whose anger is described like the anger of Achilles in the Iliad. It becomes abundantly clear to us that the people gifted with clairvoyant powers in ancient times did not exercise self-control with their intellect. Instead, they acted directly out of their most intense elemental impulses. That is the origin of the personal element, the unmediated, egotistical element we find in Krimhilde and Achilles. The study of national epics becomes especially interesting when we add the Kalevala to those already considered. Because of time limitations, today we can only mention that spiritual science in our time can point out the existence of the ancient clairvoyant conditions of humankind, because today it is again possible to call forth clairvoyant states of consciousness through spiritual training. Of course, this clairvoyant condition, permeated by the intellect and not dreamlike, is a more elevated state of mind than in the past. Human beings of the present are gradually growing into an age when hidden powers from the depths of the soul will again lead us into the supersensible. Now, however, these powers will be led by reason, not left uncontrolled. In this way we will again come to know the regions from which the old national epics speak to us from the dim consciousness of ancient times. We find that it is possible to experience a revelation of the world, not only through the external senses, 
but through something supersensible, something upon which the external physical human body is based. These are methods which will be discussed in the next lecture that enable us to make the spiritual, supersensible, inner part of our being, the part so often denied today, independent of the sensible external body. Following these methods we are not in an unconscious state as we are when, when asleep, when we become independent of our bodies, but we are able rather to perceive the spiritual world around us. In this way modern clairvoyance shows us how it is possible to live and have knowledge in a higher supersensible body, a body that fills like a vessel the body of senses. In spiritual science this higher body is called the etheric body. It resides within the body of senses. When we separate the etheric body from the physical senses body, we enter through it into that state of perception wherein we become aware of supersensible facts. We become aware of two kinds of supersensible facts. First of all, at the beginning of the clairvoyant state, we become aware, we begin to know that we are no longer seeing by means of our physical body. We are no longer thinking by means of the brain that is bound to the physical body. At first we know nothing at all of the external world. I am telling you things that will be more thoroughly established only in the next lecture. But just for this reason, the first stage of clairvoyance leads us all the more to a vision of our own etheric body. We see the supersensible bodily nature of the human being upon which the physical nature is based, and which we must describe as something that works and creates like a kind of inner master builder or building contractor who permeates our physical body with life. We become aware that what we perceive within ourselves, what we ourselves perceive as the actual life of our etheric bodies, is modified through our physical bodies, that it is dressed as with clothing, so to speak, on the physical side. When the etheric body undresses, so to speak, the eyes and ears undresses the physical brain, we belong in a sense to the earthly element. In this way we perceive how our etheric body becomes a special individual egotistical human being who is incorporated into the sheath of his or her physical body. On the other hand, we perceive how our etheric body leads us again into those regions where we stand impersonally over against a higher supersensible element. Something, something which, is not a, which is not us yet is fully present within us and works through us as a spiritual, supersensible power and force. As seen by spiritual scientific observation, the life of the soul falls into three parts that are, so to speak, enclosed in three external sheaths of the body that are filled out with these three parts. To begin with, we live with our soul life in such a way that we experience within it what our eyes see, our ears hear, altogether what our senses take in and our mind can grasp. We live with our soul in our physical body. Inasmuch as our soul lives in the physical body, spiritual science calls it the consciousness soul. This is because the human being has only been able to advance to the I consciousness in the course of human evolution by living completely into the physical body. The modern clairvoyant then comes to know the life of the soul in the etheric body. When the soul forces are working in the etheric body, then although it is true to say that we have the forces, we cannot say they are our own personal forces. They are universal forces of humankind, forces through which we stand close to all the hidden facts of nature. Inasmuch as the soul perceives these forces in an external sheath, that is, in the etheric body, we can speak of the intellectual or mind-soul as a second member of the soul. 
Just as we find the consciousness soul enclosed in the sheath of the physical body, we find the intellectual or mind soul enclosed in the etheric body. We have further an even finer body through which we extend up into the supersensible world. Everything we experience as our most private secrets, what at the same time is hidden today from consciousness and what was experienced as the power of becoming in the age of the old clairvoyance, what was experienced as if one could look back into the events of the grey mist-filled prehistoric times, all that we ascribe to the sentient body. The sentient body is enclosed in the finest of the human bodies, in what we call, please do not take offense at the expression, take it as a technical term, the astral body. It is that part of the human being that connects what works into our inner life to the external earthly world in an inspiring way. This is what we cannot perceive through the external senses. Neither can we perceive it when we look into our own etheric body. It is something we perceive when we become independent of ourselves, independent of our etheric body, and are united with the forces of our origin. We have, then, the sentient soul in the astral body, the intellectual soul in the etheric body, and the consciousness soul in the physical body. In times of ancient clairvoyance, people were more or less conscious of these things, for they could see into themselves and saw this three-membered being of the soul. It is not that they intellectually analyzed the soul into its parts, but because of their clairvoyant consciousness, the threefold human soul stood before them, the sentient soul in the astral, the intellectual soul in the etheric, and the consciousness soul in the physical body. When they looked back, they saw how the external aspect of the human being, the external form, developed out of something that continued to evolve and, ha- and has led to the result we see today in the threefold power of the soul. They felt that the threefold membering of the soul was born out of creative supersensible powers. They felt that the sentient soul was born out of supersensible creative powers given to us by the astral body, the body we possess not only between birth and death, like the etheric and physical bodies, but can take with us when we pass through the gate of death, the body we had before we entered existence at birth. The old clairvoyants saw the sentient soul united with the astral body. They saw what was working out of the spiritual world upon human beings, creating and inspiring the astral body as the power that creates the human being out of the entire universe. They saw a second creative power in something that, with time, has resulted in what we today know as the intellectual or mind-soul. The second power has created the etheric body in such a way that it can transform all the external substances, all external matter, to the point where those substances can permeate the human physical form in a human, not in an animal way. The old clairvoyants saw the creative spirit for the etheric body, the creative spirit, the results of whose work appear in our intellectual soul, working as a superhuman cosmic power into the human being, just as, for example, magnetism works into physical matter. They looked up into spiritual worlds and saw a divine spiritual power constructing, forging the etheric body of the human being. This etheric body then becomes the master builder that can transform external matter, pulverize it, so to speak, and mill it so that what is normally present in matter is transformed, with the result that the human being acquires human abilities. The old clairvoyant saw how this creative power transformed all matter in an artistic way so that it could become human matter. Then they looked at the third power, at the consciousness soul, what actually makes the human being egotistical, which is a transformation of the physical body, 
they ascribed these forces that hold sway in the physical body solely to the hereditary line, to what derives from father and mother, from grandfather and great-grandfather and so forth, in short, to what is the result of human powers of love, human powers of reproduction. They saw in this the third creative power, the power of love working from generation to generation. The old clairvoyants looked up to three powers. They looked up to a creative being that eventually called forth our sentient soul by shaping the human being's astral body, the astral body that can be inspired by supersensible powers, because it is the body which the human being had before becoming a physical being through conception. It is the body the human being will have after passing through the gate of death. This structure of forces, we could better say this heavenly structure in the human being that endures while the etheric and physical bodies pass away, is at the same time for the ancient clairvoyant that which has brought forth all human culture. Their direct experience told them this. For this reason they saw in the bringer of the astral body that power which carries the divine and which itself consists of nothing but what endures, the power through which the eternal of the world sings and sounds forth into the world. And the ancient clairvoyants from whom the figures in the Kalevala arose have given us in Vainamoinen the living graphic expression of that power of creation which confronts us now as the sentient soul, which inspires the divine into the human. Vainamoinen is the creator of that part of the human being that endures beyond birth and death, bringing the heavenly into the earthly. Let us consider the second figure in the Kalevala, Ilmarinen. When we go back to the ancient clairvoyant consciousness, we find that Ilmarinen creates out of the forces of the earth and out of what belongs to earth's deeper non-sensible forces everything that is an image of the living form of the etheric body. We see in Ilmarinen the one who brings the power able to completely transform all matter. We see in him the one who forges the human form. And we see in the Sampo the human etheric body forged by Ilmarinen out of the supersensible world so that sensible matter can be pulverized and then lead from generation to generation. The third divine supersensible being gives the forces in which the human consciousness soul continues working in the physical world from generation to generation through the powers of love. We see this third divine supersensible power in Lemminkainen. In this way we see mysteries of humankind's origins in the smithies who forged the Sampo. We look back into human prehistory and see deep secrets coming forth from the ancient clairvoyant consciousness on the basis of the Kalevala. We can say, that was not the age when we could have analyzed natural phenomena with our intellect. Everything was primitive, but within this primitive consciousness people perceived what stands behind the sensible appearances around us. Now, when these bodies of human beings were forged, that is, when the etheric body of the human being, the Sampo, was forged. It first had to be worked on for a while. Human beings did not immediately have the forces that were being prepared for them by supersensible powers. After the etheric body was forged, it first had to become accustomed to the new conditions, just as when a machine is prepared for use it must be fully developed, completely ripened, as it were, in order to be placed in position and put to use. In human evolution... This is true of all evolution. There must be a transition time between the creation of a specific member and its use. In this way human beings forged their etheric body in distant primal times. 
Then an episode came when this etheric body was sent down into human nature. Only later did it light up as the intellectual soul. Human beings learned to use their powers as external forces of nature. From their own nature they brought forth the sampo which had remained hidden. In a wonderful way we see in a series of pictures this secret of human evolution in the forging of the sampo, in its being hidden, in the ineffectiveness of the sampo, in the episode that lies between its forging and rediscovery. We see how the sampo is first sunk into human nature and then pulled out to become part of the cultural life, which only first appears as primitive forces of culture as described in the second part of the Kalevala. Everything in this great national epic acquires deep significance when we see in it descriptions achieved through clairvoyance of ancient events in the evolution of humanity, in the coming into being of human nature through the addition of its various members. I can assure you that it was a wonderful surprise for me to find in this epic, which I truly only got to know long, long after the facts of the evolution of human nature had become clear to me, what I had presented more or less theoretically in my book Theosophy, at a time when I had not yet read a single line of the Kalevala. So we see how secrets are presented to humanity by Vainamoinen, the creator of supersensible inspirations, the history of the forging of the etheric body. But there is yet another hidden mystery. You will remember that I do not understand Finnish and can speak only out of spiritual science. I would be able to explain what the word Sampo means only if I may speak in the following way. We see the etheric body become active in the animals, as the master builder for the most varying forms, from the most perfect to the least perfect. Something was forged into the human etheric body that collects and embraces all these animal forms into a unity. But the following must also be said. The etheric body, that is the sampo, is forged over the entire earth according to climatic and other conditions, so that this etheric body has within its forces the special folk characteristics, the special idiosyncrasies of different peoples. One people is configured one way, another people differently. For each people, the sampo is what constitutes the particular form of the etheric body. It is what brings precisely this particular ethnic folk to life, so that the members of this ethnic group all look the same because of what is shining through their physical living form. To the extent that identical appearances in the human form are constructed by the etheric, to that extent the etheric forces of the etheric body lie in the sampo. We have then, in the Sampo, the symbol of the cohesion of the Finnish people. We have what constitutes their humanity in the depths which the Finnish people have brought to expression in its own particular form. This is the case with every national epic. National epics can only arise where the culture is still enclosed in the forces of the Sampo, in the forces of the etheric body. As long as the culture is dependent upon the powers of the Sampo, that is, how long the people carry the stamp of this sampo. For this reason, the etheric body maintains the characteristics of the nationality throughout the entire culture. When could, in the course of the cultural process, a break occur in this national, ethnic, or popular culture? It could happen when something entered into the cultural process of humanity that is intended not for a single person, for a single tribe, or for a single folk, but for all humankind. This something must be taken from depths of human nature so intimate and profound that it applies to all human beings without reference to nationality, race, or anything similar, and then incorporated into the cultural process. This is just what happened when certain powers spoke not to an ethnic group, 
but to all humankind. Powers that are hinted at in an impersonal way, also in terms of the nationality, when at the end of the Kalevala Christ is born of Mariatta. Then the child is baptized. Vainamoinen leaves the country. Something has happened that brings together this particular folk with the universal human. Here, at this point, in one of the greatest, most significant and meaningful national epics, where the story leads into an entirely impersonal, and please pardon the paradoxical expression, non-Palestinian description of the Christ impulse, the Kalevala becomes especially significant. The Kalevala leads us to feel the happiness and beneficence manifested by the Sampo when it continues working through all human evolution, when it is experienced working together with the Christian idea, with the Christian impulse. This is the illimitably delicate moment at the end of the Kalevala. This is also what makes it clear that the events preceding this birth in the Kalevala belong to the time before Christ. But as true as it is that the universally human can only continue to exist by preserving what is individual, just as true is it that the individual cultures of nations which derive their being from the ancient clairvoyant states of their people continue to live in the universal human. It is just as true that everything the Kalevala alludes to as Christian at its conclusion is perpetually uniting with the inspiration Vainamoinen represents. For what Vainamoinen represents works on without end and will retain its own special consequences. With Vainamoinen something is intended that belongs to the part of our being that is above birth and death, something that goes with us through every stage of human evolution. In this way epics, such as the Kalevala, present us with something eternal that can be permeated by the Christian idea. This idea makes itself felt as something individual that will always prove that the universal human, like white sunlight split into many colors, will continue to live in the many folk cultures. And because this universal human permeates the individual element in the national epics, the individual element that shines into every individual human being, that speaks to every man or woman, for this reason the people live so very much in the being of their national epics. For this reason the people of ancient times stand so full of life before our eyes, the people who in their clairvoyance have beheld the essence of their own nationality as it is described to us in all national epics. We can learn about this essence when, as in the Kalevala, humanity with its intimate details of life is surrounded by the circumstances that live in the Finnish nationality, when this national temperament found in the depths of the soul is portrayed in such a way that it can be placed directly alongside what modern spiritual science reveals concerning human mysteries. In this way, ladies and gentlemen, such national epics, in their essence, are at the same time a living protest against all materialism, against any theory that derives the human being out of forces, conditions, or beings that are merely material. Such national epics, especially the Kalevala, report to us that the human being originates in a spiritual soul condition. Therefore, a renewal, a reconception of ancient national epics can accomplish an immeasurably great service for a living spiritual culture. For today, spiritual science would altogether like to bring about a renewal of human consciousness. It would like to remind us that humanity is rooted in the spirit, not in matter. An exact study of an epic such as the Kalevala shows us that the best the human being has, also the best that the human being is, originates in the realm of soul and spirit. In this sense, I found it interesting that in one of the runes, the Cantella 
protests directly against the materialistic interpretation of what appears in the Kalevala. That harp-like instrument of the ancient singers is indicated in a picture as if it were constructed out of materials taken from the physical world. But the old ruins protested against this, protested in the spiritual scientific sense, one would like to say, against the idea that the stringed instrument for Vainamoinen was put together from products of nature visible to the physical eye. In truth, so said the old runes, the instrument came from the realm of soul and spirit, the instrument upon which human beings played the songs that came to them directly out of the spiritual world. In this sense, the old rune is to be interpreted entirely in terms of spiritual science. It is a lively protest against the materialistic interpretation we are so capable of. It is a message to the effect that what human beings possess, what they are in essence, and what can be expressed only symbolically in an instrument such as is ascribed to Vainamoinen, originates in the spirit. Such an instrument originates in the spirit, as does indeed the whole human being. The following Finnish folk rune can act like a motto for the attitude of spiritual science. I would like to sum up the prevailing mood or nuance of what this lecture has attempted to explain concerning the essence of national epics with this rune. Quote, Certainly those speak falsely and find themselves in error who believe that Vainamoinen shaped the cantella, our beautiful stringed instrument, from the jawbone of a pike, and that he spun the strings from the tail of Hehisi's horse. It was shaped from want, Affliction bound its parts together, and its strings were woven by suffering and tears of longing. Unquote. And so all being is born, not out of matter, but rather out of the realm of soul and spirit. So too this old folk rune, and so spiritual science, which seeks to play a role in the living process of culture in our time. End of the lecture, and this was translated by James H. Hines.